In the wake of the explosion at the Gaza hospital, is the mainstream media in the United States and elsewhere having a moment of reconsideration? I'm Scott Ott with Stephen Green and Bill Whittle. This episode of Right Angles brought to you by the members at BillWhittle.com. Gentlemen, there is an editor's note in the New York Times uh, on October 23rd that uh, goes into details about how they should, they believe now that they should have been more careful about sourcing when it came to the early stories that they wrote and the early messages they sent out to their millions of subscribers about the bombing, so-called, of the hospital. The Times' initial alert to millions of its subscribers, the New York Times, that is, said, Israeli strike kills hundreds in hospitals, in hospital, Palestinians say. Um, As NPR now points out, the Times now reports almost every element of the accusation is in doubt. So the New York Times didn't exactly apologize, guys, uh, but they came out and basically said uh, the Times' initial accounts attributed the claim of Israeli responsibility to Palestinian officials and noted the Israeli military said it was investigating. However, Early versions of the coverage and the prominence it received in a headline, news alerts, and social media channels relied too heavily on claims by Hamas and did not make clear that those claims could not immediately be verified. Now, even now, Stephen Green, uh, none of the mainstream media seems willing to go uh, whole hog in the other direction and say clearly from the evidence of the video um, that the U.S. government has said, that the Canadian government has said, that external experts have said, that the Israeli governments have said was a misfired or a a missile from the Palestinian side gone awry. Um, It actually exploded and then changed direction and wound up landing in the courtyard of this of this hospital. The only mainstream media source that I've seen that really uh, did the work on that was the Wall Street Journal. And they actually hired an analyst and they got video and they and they time synced it and they showed every angle of it and said, no, it seems pretty clear here that this was not an Israeli bomb. Nevertheless, Steve, what I think is interesting here is the New York Times saying we should have gotten more than one source. We should have we should have not perhaps relied on what NPR acknowledges uh, is an organization that the EU, the European Union, those mabby pamby diplomats, and the U.S. consider Hamas a terror organization. Steve, I was watching CBS News today after I read this story, and I noticed that the CBS anchor continued to cite statistics about casualties that have no other source but inside of the Gaza Strip um, and continued to throw out little phrases like, uh, the hospital needs uh, fuel in order to run generators because there are infants in the NICU that are on life support who will die otherwise. But they, they provide no verification of that, no documentation, no pictures, nothing about that. Is it possible, Steve, that this is an inflection point for the mainstream media where they realize that they they went too far in being um, in essentially uh, useful tools for Hamas? Or do you think this is just a way of them getting past this so that they can get on to the normal business of one-source journalism? Let me uh, let me try and talk this out, and then I'll, so I'll, I'll answer your question very simply, but, but last, I think. Um, you know, there's uh, the the old joke, or maybe it's an actual quote. I can't remember off the top of my head about the uh, what the editor would say to reporters. 
if your mother says she loves you, check it out. <laughs> you don't take yeah. what any side says. You don't go with what one yeah. side said and report it as fact. You, you, if your mother says she loves you, you better get a second source on that before you put it in my newspaper. Um, and I, I wrote about this last week over at, at PJ Media, and one of the most weaselly takes was uh, the Washington Post, which is just an absolute rag now. Um, I mean, they always used to be biased. Now they just don't give a damn. It's going to say uh, now? Yeah. Um, <laughs> they, while keeping their original story up, they tried to reframe it with a new headline. The original headline, you know, everybody died because of Jews, I think was the original headline. And, <laughs> and, and, and they're phrasing yep, <laughs> we bit. Um, and, and then their, their modified limited hangout headline was uh, everything we know for sure about the Gaza hospital strike. But in their attempt to sort of stealth edit this story, they left the original caption on the photo. And by the way, it's the same photo that everybody mm. ran on every story, which sh showed a scorched up parking lot, never a blown yeah. up hospital. Um, and nevertheless, they, this, is the, this was the photographic evidence. But in, in the Washington Post attempt to, to stealth edit, to, to, to sort of whitewash <laughs> their reporting sin, they left the original caption on the photo, which was 500 dead in Israeli airstrike on Gaza Hospital, or whatever the phrasing was, but it was those facts in, yeah. the, in the photo caption. I'm like, man, they, they're even lazy about their stealth edits. That's just, that's kind of sad in addition to the lies. Um, so what we're seeing is is not very encouraging, Scott. Um, I love the fact that the New York Times actually did this editor's note. Um, back when, when Vodka Pundit, uh, which I started back in 2002, if you can believe that, back when it was just a blog. Um, actually, let me back this up very briefly. Everybody hates making mistakes. Mistakes are embarrassing. But if you write for a living, your mistakes are out there for the entire world to see. <laughs> and yeah. It stings. It stings when you screw up, but everybody screws up. So back when, when Vodka Punnett was just a, a blog before I was a senior columnist, but when it was just a blog, the top story was the, the, the top story. So it was just blog. The newest thing goes on top and you scroll down to read the older items. And whenever I screwed up, instead of doing a stealth edit on the original story, I would put up a brand new post with the same headline every time. And the headline was mea culpa. And I would say, this is what I got wrong. This is who corrected me or how I got corrected. And this is what I'm going to try to do not to make the mistake again. I'm sorry. So you do that in order to maintain your credibility. If you do stealth edits and you get caught at it, which of course you do, uh, why is anybody supposed to trust you anymore? And the problem is, Scott, is, and this just occurred to me, our our major newspapers, which are almost all pretty far left progressive now, they don't care about their reputations because they're not in the job of reporting the news. They're in the business of confirming their readers' biases, which they all share. Um, this is, and this is a hard thing for me to say, too, because I live reading the news and writing about the news. But this is the fact of our major newspapers. So to answer your question finally, how will we know... If this is an actual inflection point of we are going to do better from now on, or is this just a way of uh, uh, 
uh, a modified limited hangout so we can sweep this stuff under the rug. We'll know when the next atrocity is reported and then turns out not to be so. And when you're dealing with Hamas, you know they're going to set up another one of these fake stories. Does the New York Times run with it? Or do they find out, do they, do they check it out when they're told their mother loves them? Yeah, imagine if they only printed what they knew. Um, Bill Whittle, the, uh, the Times said, and this is a quote in their editor's note about the Gaza hospital strike, um, I guess technically not a strike, accident, whatever you want to call it. Um, the report left readers with an incorrect impression about what was known and how credible the account was. Um, later, NPR, who noted that the BBC, Reuters, and AP, and others also ran with similar kinds of stories, uh, said that, quote, the news coverage of this event was, was said to help inspire furious protests across the Middle East that scuttled some of President Biden's efforts at easing tensions through diplomacy. I think, you know, some things were canceled because of the so-called Arab street uh, protests. Um, and... Bill, it just seems like the accountability for this needs to be even broader in a sense because it's not just that they got it wrong. It's not just that they violated their own journalistic principles uh, and got it wrong. I mean, my goodness, when I, when I read All the President's Men when I was uh, bef a journalism student, I had such admiration for the editors who were insisting that Woodward and Bernstein be able to corroborate everything with at least two witnesses. And here we're taking the word of of essentially Hamas agencies, whether that's the health department within Gaza, which is a Hamas arm, or um, or officials sometimes are quoted, um, but it's all it's all Hamas. Um, so not only did they violate their own principles in running this wrong story, but it was the stories more than anything that inflamed the street protests that then exploded and and threatened to, frankly, become another front uh, in the war. Um, Bill, how do you atone for that if you're a journalist or a newspaper editor or a, or an anchor on a newscast? Well, I think the first thing you have to do if you're going to atone for something is you're going to have to want to atone for it. And I see no evidence that, that they are wanting to atone for this. Everything that you've described sounds like, oh, you know, it looks like we got one wrong. Now, I, you do have to be fair to the New York Times. It's hard to expect a little small town rag like that to have the kind of scratch to be able to send a reporter or two to the, to the Middle East, yeah. find out what's actually going on, have to rely on phone calls and local sources and all the rest of it. But I think this is a really prime example of selection bias. And I think they ran with the story. It's the reason they ran with the story, it's because that's what they wanted to believe. That's what the editors at the New York Times wanted to believe. I've learned the hard way doing this, and I've learned a lot of it from you, Scott, actually a lot of it from you, that sometimes when there's a story that seems to be so favorable to you politically, you really, really, really need to check those out because chances are pretty good. If it's that outrageous, it's probably not true. So let's talk about uh, selection bias. These editors at the New York Times are clearly on the side of Hamas. They're not, let me rephrase that. It's not so much that they're on the side of Hamas. It's just that they are wired to be on the side of the perceived underdog yeah. who is always being oppressed by the more powerful and the more, and the more, you know, capable and, and the harder working and all the rest. So they, they have selection bias towards the Palestinian cause. And that's why they went with the story because they, because it was 
practically too good to be true from a Hamas point of view. Now, I have selection bias too, so let me tell you what my selection bias was with this um, with with this story. When I heard that, I heard the report the way you you mentioned it. I heard that Israel had an air, Israeli airstrike had hit a Palestinian hospital, and that 500 people were killed. And my instant reaction was, well, then that is a big mistake. But it was a mistake yeah. that that they didn't do it on purpose. And the reason I know they didn't do it on purpose is because they could have done it at any point during the last 30 years. They could have eliminated every hospital. They could have done it in, a, in, a, in an hour. I'm reminded of a situation that occurred in, early in the Iraq war where U.S. intelligence had uh, information that Saddam might be hiding in this uh, particular underground bunker. They sent a bunker bump, uh, busting bomb in there, and it turned out there were like 100 refugees and 83 kids were killed or something like that. Well, I have heard anecdotally, I can't back this up, I'm doing what Steve's doing, I'm trying to show a little bit of, of, of integrity here, but I had heard anecdotally uh, later in the war that Saddam knew that this was one of the places that we suspected he was in, so he filled it up with refugees in order to get this tremendous, you know, propaganda coup of showing dead bodies and that's the thing that's the thing about the this this kind of mentality when i look at when i look at i'm, I'm generalizing obviously but when i look at like a, a, a explosion or a bombing in israel i see people running to aid the victims when i see one in palestine i see people holding up bodies and and screaming and yelling and 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 and, and it's often they're still alive you know so the New York Times has has contributed to and will will has inevitably contributed to an escalation in the hatred between the Palestinians and the Israelis and an escalation in the in terms of the rest of the world's perception of the Israelis because when that story comes out everybody hears it but nobody hears the retraction nobody hears it i'm not saying that people in the news don't hear it but honestly if you go out in the world today and, and ask people, do, what, what do you think about this? Um, this? Do you think this really happened? Well, of course it happened. Israelis bombed the hospital. This is the New York Times' fault. If Hamas had just said that on camera, it would be Hamas. But Hamas says it's the New York Times. The New York Times prints it. It's a, you know, it's the it's the um, what was what, what what we used to say about that? You know, the most uh, that's Cronkite, the most trusted name in news. Yeah. Same same problem. Um, so when it's in the New York Times, now it's history. It's not just opinion now. Now it's history. And and it's not just a propaganda coup. It's, it is now part of the bloody shirts that are being held up on both sides going back for decades. And it's a particularly bloody one. And it's a lie. And and there is no way to atone for that. They, they cannot undo the damage that they've done. They can ask for forgiveness. But in terms of atonement to the sense that you're going to repair the damage that you've done, you can't repair it. That's how history is going to record the, the Gaza-Israeli war. They're going to record it as an Israeli airstrike, intentional airstrike on a hospital, because that's what the New York Times said. Well, un under the best of circumstances, war reporting is difficult, especially if you are called on to report from behind enemy lines. Um, Hamas wants the New York Times there. They want other news sources there. They clearly uh, want to um, increase access to scenes like the courtyard or parking lot area next to that hospital with the burned out hulks of cars there. Um, that serves their interest to do that. Uh, even during World War II, there were Western correspondents who were in Berlin, actually in, before World War II, leading up to um, 
when Hitler started taking over all of Europe, uh, there were Western correspondents in Germany, um, and they would report within the limitations that the administration allowed them to. So they couldn't just say everything they saw, but they didn't have to say anything that they didn't see. They didn't have to report mm -hmm. things that were false. They could refrain from reporting on things that they didn't know to be true. And they didn't, just because the administration said something, you know, meaning Hitler's administration, they didn't have to they didn't have to back that up. They could just ignore it and say, well, that's not a news story right now. And the better part of uh, valor in this situation would have been to wait. You could report that there was a fire. You could report that there were casualties if you witnessed casualties or if you had multiple corroborations on casualties. You don't have to include in the first reporting claims about who did it because you don't know. And so you can't just leap into that, especially if your only source is one that your beloved European Union calls a terrorist organization. I mean, I'm not even going to appeal to the New York Times and the mainstream media on the basis of what the U.S. government thinks, but the European Union thinks <laughs> that this is a terrorist organization. So they could have refrained from reporting uh, this. And there was an additional note in the NPR story. And by the way, the NPR, NPR story, this was a printed National Public Radio story on their website, um, struck me as being significant for them as well in the depth uh, to which it went. And at one point mentions that the Times, New York Times, employs a videographer in Gaza who on numerous occasions over the last 11 years, has praised Adolf Hitler or invoked him in social media posts. The Times claims to have had a conversation with this videographer last year, I believe, who apparently the, the videographer now understands the concerns, concerns that the Times has about his Hitler advocating posts, um, and that he, this videographer has taken action to adhere to the Times standards. The Times now says that this videographer has delivered important and impartial work at great personal risk since then. The Useful idea that you would have a reporter who had made those kinds of remarks still on the payroll. Now, he's probably a freelancer, I'm assuming, but still on the payroll and that you gave him a good talking to and you're confident that he now agrees with you that Hitler bad um, and, and, you know, you send him back in there and, and praise him to the hilt uh, just indicates to me that the Times has a videographer who works for Hamas. <laughs> it just seems like you've got to be able to draw lines. And I know the media is so desperate to get to the story that they sometimes step on their own standards and say, well, you know what? The best, what, we can only get a guy who's already on the inside. This guy can work freely within there. And even though he was a Hitler lover before, well, we're gonna, we'll still use him. He understands our standards now. And even though we only have one source on this hospital bombing, we'll go ahead and run with that. You've got to have the maturity and the professionalism to back off and not run stories that you don't know happened. And that I, I feel like a moron saying this out loud. Like in journalism school, if I had raised my hand and said, hey, by the way, should we run stories about things that have only one source and that source is on one side of a war? Should we tweet that out and email it out to millions of our subscribers? 
that I would have been laughed out of the class. And now it's being done at the highest levels of the editorial administration of the paper of record and many other news organizations. So on the one hand, good on you, New York Times, for reporting that you did this. You're not apologizing yet, but you're saying this was incorrect. And NPR is to be praised for its coverage of the fact that the media has engaged in all this. Now let's take it a step further with a commitment to actual journalism, with a commitment to to no more single source reporting and certainly no more single source reporting from the enemy army who happens to be an internationally acknowledged terrorist organization. For Bill Whittle and Stephen Green, I'm Scott Ott. Thanks to the members at BillWhittle.com for making Right Angle possible.